Esther chapter 2. As you're turning there, we're going to start with some prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you grateful for who you are. We recognize that your ways are often mysterious, that you work behind the scenes and you use the, your people for it to accomplish your means. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing uh, in history now as you are overturning things that are vile and wicked, such as abortion in this land. Lord, we pray for the pregnancy centers to grow and to prosper in helping moms and dads care for their children instead of killing their children. God, we, we want to lift up First Baptist Church of Sierra Vista as they are uh, dealing with a lot of COVID. Pastor Jesse uh, was sick with it and his wife, was, uh, who is pregnant and due in a few weeks, is also uh, exhibiting symptoms. And we want to lift them up in prayer. Father, we pray for this community. Uh, we pray for the churches in this community that they would preach the gospel clearly and that they would make your name great in, this, in the Sierra Vista area. Father, as we approach your text this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to ear and eyes to see, uh, that we would be able to understand what you have here for us. God, in this somewhat mysterious book of the Bible that doesn't even mention your name, we see your fingerprints all over it. Lord, we see your redemptive reversals in each and every aspect of the story. So, Father, I pray for wisdom. I pray for uh, that we would be edified and that we would grow in the knowledge of you through this passage. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and all God's people said, Amen. So our, our passage this morning is obviously continuing the story of Esther. So Esther chapter 1, we, we learned a little bit about this guy named Ahasuerus who is also, we know, historically as Xerxes. And Xerxes ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush, and he had a bunch of parties. That's what we read. Six months' worth of partying. Then he had banquets upon banquets. and Then he got drunk and invited his wife to come to the drunken party. His wife said no, and so he got upset, and he asked his advisors, what am I going to do? With this woman. And so he brought the affairs of state into his home to determine what to do. He made a rule that said all women must listen to their husbands. Great Father's Day message, right? And what happens? It's just a bunch of silliness, right? There's a ton of irony in here. And what we see the author of this, this text doing is bringing irony upon irony, showing how ridiculous it is that this king who owns so much, who has so many riches, can't even have his wife show up to a party, and then when it, she doesn't, he doesn't get his way, he throws a little bit of a temper tantrum. And we see that we live in a land of, of frivolous laws. And the people that are reading this recognize that leaders are making decisions based on whims, based on emotions, based on being drunk and not getting their way. And so the great comfort we see is that God is positioning people for his purposes. And we see later on as we keep going that God has a purpose in this. However, we get to our text here and we see just how he begins to position people. And so I've, I've titled the sermon uh, Redemptive Reversals because God is reversing things for the purpose of redemption. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes wish I had secret pastor glasses 
that could look behind the veil, could see what God is up to. I could push back the curtain and see what is God doing here? Why is there a war in Ukraine? Why is there these rules being made? Why, why, why? And the reality is the only way we can interpret modern day history is going to the Word of God and seeing how God interprets the history of the time. And what God is doing here is He is showing us that His ways may be mysterious, but they have a purpose. And the purpose is the redemption of His people. And it's a mystery to us, but we can have hope. Hope that what is happening is not in vain, and that He uses redemptive reversals in the life of His people and in the world. So our God is a God of reversals. And this is seen in two major reversals in our narrative. So the first reversal is Esther, right? Queen Esther, soon to be Queen Esther. So verses 1 through 4, we get a little bit of a summary. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. It says, Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to put the harem at the fortress of Susa, put them under the supervision of Haggai, Haggai the king's eunuch, keeper of the women. How is that, how's that for a title? And give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young women who pleases the king, woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Did you get the nuance in there? Did you get the, the irony, the little bit of sarcasm that this author is writing? The king cools down after his drunken party. We don't know how long it's been, how long it takes him to cool down, but I'm guessing once the hangover passes. He realizes, oh man, I really made a mistake. That was dumb. And so instead, before he heads off to conquer Greece, which he fails at doing, which we know, around the fourth year of his reign, he goes and this plan hatches. So think of this timeline. Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he is three years in. He's already put down one rebellion in uh, Egypt and Babylon. And he is now about to head off to Greece to try to conquer the islands of Greece. And I don't know if many of you know, but the, the 300 uh, Spartan warriors who fought at Thermopylae and stuff like that, that's against this king here, Ahasuerus. So he hasn't left yet, but he just lost his queen. So he puts a plan into motion to get a new queen. But listen to the words of the attendants. Look at how they describe this. Let a search be made for two descriptions, of, or three descriptions. Beautiful, young, virgins. Beautiful, young, virgins. That's what their suggestion is. So Queen Vashti is deposed, and so the king, they're saying, you need to get some beautiful young ladies around here to cheer you up. Not only that, maybe make a commissioner Make a political office, officer of finding beautiful ladies for the king. That's his job description. So think about using the power of the government for coercion, 
right? We're going to just snatch up everyone who we think is beautiful. And it says, put them into a harem at the fortress of Susa. And then they're under the supervision of this guy named Haggai, the eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. So not only are we going to go find the most beautiful young virgins, and, and we know that that translation means really young women, typically not married, um, and likely virgin in, in fact as well. So they have to get beauty treatments. So not only is he going to snatch up the most beautiful women in the land, 127 provinces worth of beautiful women, he is going to give them beauty treatments. And we're going to see how crazy those beauty treatments are. They are six months worth of beauty treatments. So the author of this is really bringing out the lust of King Ahasuerus, right? This, this man is a lustful man because it says here, this suggestion pleased the king and he did accordingly. Of course it pleased the king. He's going to get all the beautiful women and he's going to spend one night each with each one and decide which one will be the future queen. That's going to, of course, please his lustful behavior. So what is God doing? What is God doing here? We have a king who is a drunk and, the, and, a, and a, a, a womanizer, and God is going to do something with that. Sounds kind of like some of the presidents we've had in our history. Some sound somebody like some of the kings that England had in its history, right? So we've had these kind of rulers before. We, we can relate to this. But God uses the sins of people to accomplish his plans. God is going to use the sins of King Ahasuerus to accomplish his plans. Esther, the Jew, enters into the king's palace. So we're going to learn about two new characters here. So we've already know, we know about King Ahasuerus. We know about his, his character. But we're going to learn about Mordecai or Mordecai. I like to call him Mordecai because it's easier. And Esther. Verse 5. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man. So now he's, listen to the description, a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King, excuse me, Jacoina of Judah into exile. All right, so who is Mordecai? Well, Mordecai is the son of immigrants, Jewish immigrants who were taken by force from by, the, by King Nebuchadnezzar from Judah, from the land of Judah, and brought over. And if you remember anything about your, your Jewish history, you'll remember that this is the, the first kind of exile that happens. The Babylonians take the king and the royal people and the craftsmen. He takes the best workers. He takes... The, the royal people, the Daniel was among that group, right? And he takes them over into Babylon. And so this is who he comes from. This is where Mordecai comes from. And so he's living in exile. He's from the line of Benjamin, which is always important to know what line these uh, Jewish men are from. And it describes how he is in exile. So, so Mordecai is in exile. He's an immigrant. He doesn't have uh, papers, so to speak, right? He is just not able to, uh, he doesn't have the, the, the citizenship that is necessary for certain protections. 
But what's really interesting to me is his name. Does Mordecai sound like a Jewish name to you? I don't know if you guys know Jewish names. But it doesn't sound like a Jewish name. It's not really a Jewish name. In fact, it's a, uh, an, uh, uh, it's similar to the name Marduk. Anybody heard that name before, Marduk? The Babylonian god. The, king, the main god of the Babylonians. So this man, Mordecai, is named after a Babylonian god. And he's a Jew. Very interesting. I think the name choice was probably a, a form of protection for him, um, for those living in exile, because if you can get the name similar, maybe you can be, have a little more extra protection. Uh, but we see that Mordecai doesn't forsake his faith. Even though he has the name of a foreign god, a pagan god, he seems to be quite honorable. And we're going to see more because he adopted the other main character in the story. Look at verse 7. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah. So that's Esther's real name, Hadassah. That is Esther. Because she had no father or mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and many, when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, the keeper of the woman. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. So we see that Esther here is the cousin of Mordecai. He was a, she was adopted by Mordecai when her parents died. And we learn that Esther also had a Jewish name, but Esther is a pagan name. She went by her pagan name because it sounds like another god or goddess, Ishtar. So we have... Marduk and Ishtar showing up when the God of the Bible is even mentioned in the book of Esther. Isn't that interesting? It's another Mesopotamian pagan God. And so she has also hidden her Jewish heritage with a pagan name. What we learn about Esther is not only that she is externally beautiful, but she is internally, she's pleasing to those that she encounters. She pleases Haggai, the keeper of women, so that he gives her a special place in the palace, in the harem. He gives her special diet and beauty treatments, and he accelerates her beauty treatments. He also gives her seven female servants. Well, God is not mentioned. It's not hard to see that God's hand is in all of this by providing her with this special treatment and location. And this brings us to a time of preparation and waiting. Now, I don't want to draw too much connection to our present day lives. But many of us, God has called us to certain tasks, but we have to wait. How many of you enjoy waiting? <laughs> right? Chilling, sitting on the couch, eating potato chips. No, preparing, but waiting. You're not doing what you feel like God has called you to do, but you're stuck in limbo. Now, you could take matters into your own hands, 
and try to do what God wants you to do on your own strength, or you could wait. And that's what we see about Esther. She's here waiting. Verse 10 says, Esther did not reveal her ethnic or family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to take to make them known. So Esther here is keeping her background a secret because she's obeying Mordecai like her own dad. So she's not only that, not only is she beautiful, not only is she pleasing to those around her, but she's also obedient to the wisdom of her elders. And we see more about this. And then verse 11, every day Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. Man, Mordecai was a pretty good dad, right? He goes and, and, and checks on his, his, his adopted daughter every day. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you may have had good dads. I had a great dad, thanks, thanks be to God. And when I would be out for late at night when I was in Africa, he would leave the car out of the garage ready to go and grab me if something happened. Um, he, would, he would wait to see that I got home safely. Uh, and if you know anything about West Africa, you know there's a lot of, of, of stealing. And so he put his car at risk because it could be broken into, they could try to steal it, whatever, for his son who was out going to the beach or whatever the random things I wanted to do in high school, right? But he cared enough about me that he would wait for me. He would check on me. He would be prepared. And that's what we see in Mordecai. He is every day walking around to learn how she was doing and see what is happening to her. He really didn't have control over the fact that Esther was drugged into the king's palace and the harem. But what he did have control over, he was responsible for Verse 12, during the year before each young woman's turn to go to the king, uh, to King Ahasuerus' harem, uh, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments. Now, here we go. This is what I love. I love these beauty treatments. Listen to this. Ladies, listen carefully. Beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months. Six months of lathering on that myrrh. Then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. So you got a whole year of lathering up oils and putting on perfumes. And many of you ladies are like, I do that every day. I am already ready for my king, right? And, and what we see is they ha this is just a ridiculous amount of stuff that is happening to these women. A year-long perfumes and oils, when the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. So she was allowed to bring one thing with her to try to please the king, right? One gift, one thing. Maybe if she's a, a, a piccolo player, she brings a piccolo. I don't even know what a piccolo is, but she brings it with her or a lute or whatever it is they used back in those days, right? And she brings that with her. She gets one thing to bring with her. Verse 14, she would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's unit, Shazgaz, that's a great name, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Notice the timeline. He's not inviting her over for tea in the morning to have a conversation, right? We don't have to go any deeper than that. This passage doesn't go deeper, but he, she comes in the evening and leaves in the morning. 
That's what all this king wants. He doesn't really want a conversation. But in order to be brought back, he has to call her by name. And that's very important to recognize that it's by name he can summon her. He can't just say, remember that woman from 17 nights ago? Yeah, bring her back. No, it has to be by name. So there's a, there's a whole process. It's quite intricate. So we know Mordecai is being a good dad. We see the irony of the beauty treatment, six months of both oil and myrrh and perfumes, and then a whole year of preparation for one night, one night with the king. Prepare a whole year for this. It's like the worst job interview ever. They were allowed to bring that one item with them, and then they're placed in a second harem. So they start out in one harem, and then there's place in the second harem afterwards. Why do you think that is? Well, it reduces gossip, right? It reduces, hey, the king likes this, or the king doesn't like that, right? It's a completely, hopefully, anonymous system. So the king would probably never see them again. And once you spend that one night with the king... What are your prospects of marriage? Zero. So that's it. You get one chance and your life is over. Can you imagine the depression that would set in as you're preparing and the king doesn't call night after night? There's a lot of waiting. Now, I can't imagine there would be much there to stimulate the brain. They didn't have TV or Netflix. They didn't have video games. Um, maybe they had access to the library, but many women weren't taught to read. So what are they going to do? What do, you, would they, what do you think they would be thinking about? That would be a pretty depressing thought pattern, right? How can I please the king? What can I bring with me? What can I wear that will be most appealing to him? For a year of thinking like this. Think about the gossip that might be happen, happening. Sitting around in a circle. Oh, the king won't like that. Oh, the king will like that. Oh, well, you shouldn't wear that. Oh, that myrrh, that's way too powerful. You need to stay way over there. You're stinky. King won't like a stinky lady, right? And you have this weird dynamic. And there's probably a lot of anxiety going on, right? A lot of worry. Um, your whole purpose was for one night, and that's it. Man, think about these poor women. The reality is we all know what was expected of these women for this one thing. So what becomes of Esther, right? This is a, a troubling passage for a lot of, Christians, because Esther is beautiful, and she is brought to the king for this one-night stand, right? We as believers kind of take a step back and say, whoa, this is God's plan. Verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. Once again, we see some wisdom in, in Esther, don't we? She's a pretty smart lady. Hey, eunuch who knows the king better than any of these, the gossip girl circle, what should I bring with me? Right, which then brings her favor because that everyone is beginning to like her. Verse 16 says, She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace. Now listen to when it, when it happened. In the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So the whole party system was at the third year of his reign. 
And then the seventh year of his reign is when she actually sees him. The king loved Esther more than any other women. Oh, we're, we're jumping ahead. Sorry. So let's look at this a little bit. So she's taken to the king in the seventh year of his reign. So as we know history, what do we know about King Xerxes in the seventh year of his reign? He just had a massive failure, like a, a catastrophic failure. He was unable to conquer Greece because after destroying the Spartans in the th Battle of the 300, he goes and he tries to fight. He fights the Athenians, burns some of their stuff, and then he loses a major battle in the water, right? We talk about the bridges and crossing. I, I don't know if you guys know much about Greek history, but he basically fails epically. Right? He has all the power of Persia behind him, and he fails to take Greece. And so he comes home, and what we know about Xerxes, or, or Ahasuerus, is that he doesn't do anything else with his life after that. He comes home, and he does building projects. And he builds some pretty magnificent building projects, but his, his desire for conquest has been destroyed. In fact, most historians say he just got drunk all the time and partied it up with ladies. That's what he did. He, he chased women, and he built things. That was his life. So right after his failure, in comes Esther. Do you think that he might be thinking, man, I really need to win about right now? He's like, my, I'm being beat up after all this campaign. And so what we see is he failed and he doesn't do much with his failure. And so we have very little words about Esther's queenship. So verse 16, she was taken to the king Ashwareth. 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. That's pretty significant. She won more favor and approval from him than did any other virgins, any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in the place of Vashti. Do you see how quick this happened? Then we have another banquet. That's what the king likes to do. 18. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. That's pretty cool. Esther's banquet. He, feed, he freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. He gave everybody tax breaks. Man, we could use that with our gas prices, right? He gave everybody tax breaks. He gives everybody everything. He gives money. He gives uh, gifts. And we see this major reversal happen, don't we? What was a, a Jewish lady in hiding is now the queen of Persia. Massive. Think about the series of circumstances to get her on the throne. Not only did the king have to be a drunk buffoon and then fire his queen, then he had to go to war and fail terribly. Then he needed a win and he found a woman that, was, that he liked, finally, out of all the women in the empire. He brings her in, makes her the queen. All of that so that Queen Esther could save the people, the Jewish people. Because we know later on there's a plot to kill all the Jews. We see a redemptive reversal here with Esther. All these things of wickedness of man, of um, circumstances that we wouldn't anticipate, even the sins of King Ahasuerus lead to this. Maybe there's sinful things that have happened against you. 
Maybe just like King Ahasuerus' lust led to Esther being made queen, the sins done against you have led you to a certain place in your life where you can thrive uh, by the Lord's blessing. Maybe if you consider your life today, has God used circumstances in your life to get you where he wants you? Maybe even, even the sinful things that you have done and that has led you to repentance and faith. Why has God placed you here? There's no accident. Why is gas more expensive? There's no accident. God has a purpose in all of this. Now, we may not know what it is. You may not see all the background, all the circumstances, but God has placed you there for a reason. And your purpose is to glorify God. So how can you glorify God best where you are? That's, that's what I want you to think about next time you're sitting on the doctor's chair and he says, I have bad news for you. How do I respond and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or you hear some bad news financially, or you see something on the news. You know, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to go to the news. Let's not go to the news. So we have a second redemption, a second, a second redemptive reversal, Mordecai. So Mordecai is also a Jew in hiding in the land of Persia. And he is in a place where he can impact the future. Just like dads impact the future of their children, just like moms impact the future of their children, so also Mordecai impacts the future. Look at verse 19. It says, When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, this is after Esther has become queen. And so what many commentators are saying is that it, it, this is referring to another banquet, that they were gathering the ladies for another banquet. Okay, I, I don't know what this virgin is a second time. I really hope that King Ahasuerus is not continuing his pattern of chasing, of getting more and more virgins and having one night stands with all of them, even though he has found a queen. I hope that's not what it's saying here, but it could be. But Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So Mordecai has now moved into the inner sanctum of King Ahasuerus. He is nearby. Verse 20, Esther still still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity. As Mordecai had directed, she obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. Did you notice something here? When you read Jewish literature, when you see repetition, what is that doing? That's emphasizing something. It means pay attention. This is important. So it's important to note that Esther is still hiding her identity. This is not a place for Jewish people to be out in the open, right? It's, a, uh, it's dangerous. And we see that Esther is also very obedient to Mordecai, even when she is no longer under his roof. Verse, um, excuse me. So Esther is still keeping her ethnicity secret, but Mordecai is sitting at the gate where his cousin is probably gathering new near his cousin, gathering news about her. Um, he probably has some type of official position in order to be that close. You know, only someone in the government would be allowed to be that close to the, the inner palace. But his location provided an opportunity. Look, look at verse 21. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, 
two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. An assassination attempt is plotted or is planned right next to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a Jew in hiding in Persia and someone said we're going to kill the king, I don't know if I would really say anything about that. And not only that, but the daughter that I just raised is now placed into his harem and is is now the queen. I really don't know if I would want to share the news and say, man, I I get my my daughter back and we get out of here. But he doesn't do that. Mordecai hears of this assassination attempt. And there's two interesting facts about this assassination attempt. Number one is the timing. King Ahasuerus just got back from a failed campaign to destroy the Greeks. His kingdom would be ripe for rebellion. Some of his early, just like some of the early years that he put down. So based on the timing, he was a prime target for assassination. Right? When's the best time to assassinate a king? Right? When the poll numbers are low. Right? When no one likes him. No one likes King Ahasuerus because he's not expanding the kingdom like his father. And so he is now pl- uh, prime for assassination. So the timing is perfect. The location is perfect. And second, the history of Ahasuerus is that he was eventually assassinated. And do you know who assassinated him? His bodyguard and one of the eunuchs. One of his eunuchs and one of his bodyguards assassinated him. The king of his bo- or the, the chief of his bodyguards uh, later down the road. And so historically, we know that this is so true. This is so accurate. Mordecai's discovery fits the historical facts well. So God places Mordecai, because of Esther being in the harem, near the king's gate where he overhears the assassination attempt. Do you see all the dominoes? So when, when people say, oh, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and you kind of chuckle and say, oh, that's just a really, that's cliche. No, it's true. He does work mysteriously. We don't see all the dominoes. We don't see why uh, Queen Vashti was deposed, but then we see Esther. We don't know why Esther is in the harem, but then we see Mordecai. And so we have this, verse 22. Mordecai learned of the plot. He reported it to Queen Esther. Now that would probably make Queen Esther feel, uh, not feel, but be higher in the king's estimation. So she is now protecting him because of this warning. And so Mordecai reports the plot to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. And then verse 23, when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. Now this is foreshadowing because we learn a lot about hanging later on. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Remember how amazing the Persian system of laws, the law of the Medes and the Persians, and their postal system, and their writing. They take good records. And so this is recorded. And this becomes important later, so don't forget that. You might realize if you get sleepy, go back and read 3 and 4. We could try to say all these things are coincidences or luck, couldn't we? Oh, Esther is so lucky. She's lucky because she's beautiful. She's lucky because she pleases people. She's lucky because she's in the harem, which I don't know why you would say that, but she's lucky because of this. She's lucky because of that. She's lucky, 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 lucky. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? This is planned by the God of the universe. There is a purpose. There's no accidents in history, and there's no accidents now. 
It's the reason that Biden is the president is because God made him the president. The reason Trump was the president was because God made him the president. Right? There's no accidents here, guys. This is all within God's plan and God's purposes. Now, I think all the details that we see in, in Esther are also like the details that we see in another man, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see all the details of the life of Jesus, that he was born in a very peculiar way, in a manger of a virgin mother, probably not super rich, and it's a redemptive reversal that we see here. And the way and the method of, of his death fulfilled prophecies. The place of his birth fulfilled prophecies. A king or a, a ruler makes a decree that everyone goes back to their hometown and get registered. That's no accident that, that, that Joseph would have to bring Mary and Jesus to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. Man, I'm, 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 I'm brought to a deeper faith in the marvelous redemptive reversals of God. Man, as I read through scriptures, I see these marvelous redemptive reversals over and over again. That God would choose a poor virgin to carry the divine child. Now, if we trust God through Jesus Christ for that, can we trust him today? If we can trust Jesus, or not, if we can trust God for what he's done with Esther and saving her, the people of God through all these coincidences, can we not trust him today when the gas is ridiculous? When we pay $100 to fill our tanks? When we are cutting back and eating ramen noodles instead of Chef Boardi noodles? I don't know what the, the levels is. My wife does the shopping, as you can tell. But I also see not only that Jesus has done this redemptive, or God has done this redemptive reversal through Jesus, but he's also done a redemptive reversal in my life. And I know he's done that in your life. I wonder, has this happened to you? Has God shown you what a sinner you are? How undeserving of his mercy that we saw in Romans as it was read. Has he taken that sin and placed it on the shoulders of his dear son? Are you still living with the sin in your life? The only way to remove the stain of sin in your life is through the perfect life of another. A perfect, redemptive reversal. I ask you to come today if that's you. You know what? You're not worthy of coming to Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us in this room, not a single person in the history of Christianity is worthy. So you may feel like, oh, i got to clean myself up. No, you don't. Come to him today. If you don't know Christ, if you do not have your trust fully in Jesus Christ, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders. You don't have to carry the sin and the guilt and the shame in your life. Now, I, I hope that you can find comfort that God is in control and that he protects his people by reversing the status quo. He is actively at work in history. And I will go to the gulag, to say that. God is in control, and we are not. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for your sovereignty, that you are in control of all these things. Father, if we were in control, we would just mess it up. Father, we can't even tie our shoes right. So, Father, I thank you that you would look upon a worm like me and would choose me to be a member of your family. 
Lord, I thank you that you would bring a church like this and make it a, an effective part of your kingdom and see lives transformed by the gospel of your dear son. That you would take a lowly virgin and give her a child which would grow to be the savior of the world. Father, I am just floored by this reality that all the kings and, and uh, Caesars of Rome could not silence Christianity, that you took the, the fishermen of the world, the, the, the riffraff and the, the ones that were the, the bar fighters and made them proclaim the gospel of Christ through the whole world. Father, what an amazing reality that you could take someone in this room, uh, whether they be educated or not, whether they be smart, whether they be good looking or not, and use them for your glory for every purpose possible. Father, what a beautiful picture of redemptive reversals. God, as we go out from this place, I, help, I, I pray earnestly for the people of Sierra Vista that those who do not know you would see the redemptive reversals in the lives of these people here and that they would be able to come to know you. Lord, we don't, we don't care if it's this church or another church, but we care that they would come to know you truly and rightly. And so, Father, we pray for Sierra Vista. And in fact, just like John Knox prayed for Scotland, I pray for Sierra Vista. Give us Sierra Vista or we die. Lord, just like um, the Old Testament woman said, give me children or, or, or let me die. Father, we, we pray for revival in this community. Lord, we, uh, we're humbled that you would work through us and use us even when we are raggedy and rag muffins. And we thank you for your mercy upon us and your grace to us. In all these things, we ask in the beautiful name of Christ and through the power of the Spirit. Amen.